Um, today, friends, is uh, rather important uh, in the one-year history of RHC Church. We've been around for roughly a year now. I guess in February is February 12th will be our official one-year anniversary. But today really marks a, a special day in our short, brief, but really cool history because in a little while, uh, we will present to you, I will, or the leadership will, we will present to you our first council of elders. Um, and that's, man, to be around for 11 months and to have men that fit the qualifications and, and are being appointed at this juncture in a church's history, I mean, brief history, is just amazing. And uh, it comes through a number of ways that, you know, these men, I've known these men for a long period of time and, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, just an extraordinary thing to be uh, able to do such a thing at this early juncture in our church. Amazing, amazing. Up till now, um, the church has been governed, you know, constitutionally by a group of men, really the same group of men, and a single pastor, me. Um, but this change that we're making brings the governance structure of the church into closer harmony with the scripture, uh, which we see as our ultimate authority, our highest authority, and we want to do all things scripturally. And sometimes, um, you know, the, the, the heart and attitude and pursuit of doing that, sometimes there's a little bit of a process in getting there. God, in his timing, brings the right people and what have you. And so, but this move that we're making really um, helps us to become more of a scripturally based, gospel-centered church. So I'm praising him for that. Now, my aim this morning is to put this historic day into a biblical perspective. I want as many of you as possible to have a biblical understanding of how Christ wants his people to function as an organism and as an organization. Before we actually examine the passage that we just heard read, uh, 1 Tim 3, 1 to 7, which really illustrates um, the qualifications of an elder. Before we get to that towards the end of this presentation, I'm going to roll out like six statements from Scripture about church leadership. And there should be some, some slides and things that, that correlate um, that'll help to kind of lock these things in some visual aid. Um, but you can take notes too. Hopefully you all have note sheets and you're ready to go on those things so you can record some of these things. Six things from scripture about church leadership. A would be very simple, a, a really a no-brainer, uh, that would be that Jesus is the head of the church, um, meaning that elders, a lead pastor, they are not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority, life giver, sustainer, and so on. We could list a zillion different adjectives and titles that he holds, but he is the head of his church. It's so important for us to get this because in some religious circles and some of them being Christian-based, they don't seem to understand that and they give man um, equal standing with Jesus Christ. They would say that 
Jesus and man are the heads of the church, beginning with Simon Peter as the first pope and so on and so forth. And so this is just critical that we understand that Jesus Christ is the one and only head of his church. Ephesians 5.23 says it like this, very simple, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body and is himself its savior. Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. I like that description of Jesus as being the head. It really sounds like what the author Paul has said is that he's not sharing headship with anyone else. He is the head so that he can be seen as the preeminent above all things. Um, he does not share the title. Ephesians 4, 15 to 16 says it like this. Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, uh, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love so the church is like a body that gets its leadership and its nourishment from its head, Jesus Christ. The church is not a mere human organization, as some would have you believe and as some teach. Um, it is not a mere organization because it is an organism. It is a body. And it is not merely human because its head is divine. The life he gives is supernatural life. So the way... A church is run should not simply copy the way a human organization is run. And that's a huge point because many pastors that lead churches today are in a radical pursuit to copy and mimic business and corporations and things in running their churches. They want to reduce down the leading and running of a church and the structure and all that to human means, which is a sin which is wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't look out and see, you know, some things that people are doing and maybe apply them to some, not necessarily the structures and the way the church should be run, but we can glean. There's truth out there in some areas, but for crying out loud, we don't look at IBM. We don't look at Apple. We don't look at In-N-Out Burger. We don't look at these places that are successful and say, the way that they're running that particular corporation is the way that we need to run the church. Why? Because they're successful, and if we copy what they're doing, we'll be successful. You won't be successful in accomplishing God's mission if you do that. You'll be successful in getting you know, rear ends and chairs, getting people on your campus. You'll be successful in doing those things, but you won't be successful in accomplishing the mission of God and glorifying God. You will not be. You will not be. So in a way, the church should, um, the way a church should run should not just simply copy the way a human organization is run. There should be structures and practices that let Christ, the head, govern, lead, and nurture his church. Jesus Christ, again, is the living head, the leader and the sustainer of the church, which is his body. Are we clear on this? Jesus is the head of the church. This church is not Pastor Phil's church. This church is not the elder's church. This church belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the head, and ultimately, he is the lead pastor. And if we maintain that perspective, there's no limits to where he will take us. If any man in this church, including me, takes seizure of this church and makes it his own, this place is finished. Cast me out. 
instantaneously. Expel the elders. If we ever seize this thing and try to take it unto ourselves, this is Christ's church. He is the head. He is the ultimate lead pastor. If we're not led by him, we're led by men. We're led by the world. It's so critical that we understand this. And as Christians, we all say, yes, I get it, I get it, I get it. The most certain way to test that is to see how a church is ran. How do the men lead it? Are they prayerful? Are they teaching the word the right way, expounding on it? Are they building disciple-based, gospel-focused relationships? Are they doing things the way that Christ has laid before us in his word? That's the most certain way to tell. And, I, and you know what? I'm excited to say that's what we do. Not because Pastor Phil's special and he really gets it because I don't get a lot of it. Not because the elders, boy, they're just perfect and they just get all this stuff. No. No, we allow Christ to be Christ in his church and to lead his church. And we're following him. We're following him. Praise God. Second thing, B, priests and ministers. All members of Christ's body are priests and ministers. 1 Peter 2.9 says, very simply, You are a chosen race, speaking to the believers, Peter writes, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his what? We love to sing that song, Marvelous Light. Revelation 1, 5 to 6, to Jesus who loves us and has freed us from the sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. And then he says this, priests, we are priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The New Testament knows nothing of a priesthood of the clergy. Okay? The New Testament knows nothing. It speaks nothing of a priesthood of the clergy. 1 Tim 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now we all go directly to God through Christ, not through professional priests, nor through Mary. Every Christian is a priest under Jesus Christ. So, point, elders aren't some special group of priests that you're to go through to get to Jesus Christ. Elders are not there for that purpose. They're not your mediator between you and Jesus Christ. As some religions would have you believe, some being Christian. The Bible speaks nothing about that. Every Christian is a priest. Every Christian is a minister the word minister does not define my pastoral office in the church. It defines my function. And it defines your function. Ephesians 4.12 says that pastors and teachers do what? They exist to equip the saints for the work of the ministry of what? The gospel. You and I, we're all ministers of the gospel. We're all priests, in a way, under the head, and under the head priest, Christ. It says that in 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. It says that we are all priests, again, in Matthew 23, 8 to 11. 
have it clear here, friends. Christ is the head of his church. And elders are not just this body of, like, we're not this body of, like, priests and ministers that you have to channel through with God by no means. Not at all. We're all priests, priestettes, <laughs> priestesses, whatever you want to call it. That's weird. That just sounds weird, doesn't it? Don't you downplay me, Pastor Phil. I'm a priestess. We're all priests. We're all ministers in some way. We all administer the gospel to others, right? Isn't that really the function of a priest and a minister is to administer the gospel to others? That's our role. That's what we're called, a royal priesthood. How cool is that? Royal. We belong to royalty, the king of kings. We're under his reign. We're priests and ministers under him. How cool is that? See the authority of the local congregation. Under Christ, the local congregation is the final authority in the church. I don't mean that the congregation is above the scriptures because the scriptures are the word of Christ. We submit to Christ by submitting to his word in the Bible. Nor do I mean that the congregation is above the Holy Spirit because the spirit is the spirit of Christ. We submit to Christ by submitting to his spirit in the church. What I mean is that under Christ, his word, and under his spirit, the congregation, and not pastors or elders or deacons or bishops or popes or whatever, ultimately, the ultimate authority lies in the body. The body of Christ settles matters of faith and life. That's quite an extraordinary thing to hear, that you actually carry with you authority to make decisions for the church, final authority in matters of discipline, which I'll get to in things like that. How often do we view the elders, deacons, whatever these guys are, these titles, to be that final authority? They are not. We are not. I am not. You are. The church of Christ is. Some of you are thinking, I got some power. You do, but be careful. Go gentle. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but you do. You have authority. You are the final word on matters of faith and life. That's an amazing thing. We all share in that together. And it sounds weird. It sounds foreign. It sounds different because that's not normally what we're taught. We see the elders as this reclusive group that just ultimately exercises authority downward upon everyone. That's not the way that it works. Not the way that it works. Now, this is not only implied in the priesthood of all believers, but illustrated in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, where the church is the last court of appeal in church discipline. I'll read it. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the final authority, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. The final movement in church discipline 
is bringing the brother who is in sin, who is not repentant, before the congregation and letting them exercise their authority to expel him, hand him over to Satan, so that he may come to his senses and become restored. But ultimately, the buck ends and stops with the congregation. That's extraordinary. Elders are not to make those heavy, hard decisions alone. No. The whole body of Christ has to be involved in these things. Why? Because it's one body and one big family. In a family, you cannot allow the mother to make the ultimate decisions in discipline. The husband has to be a partaker in those decisions and vice versa. You can't lead a family that way. Well, what is the church of Christ? It is a family. We share the responsibility together to care for one another and to exercise discipline when necessary. And why do we exercise discipline? Out of a strong desire and love for our brothers and sisters to see them reconciled to one another and to Christ, not just to put it on them, not just to beat them down or to harm them. True discipline means restoration. That's what we're seeking. And as the congregation, you have that responsibility and authority. So far then, Christ is the head of the church. All members of his body are priests and ministers, and therefore these members as a congregation are the final authority in the church under Christ, that is, under his word, under his spirit. D. Those called as leaders. God calls some members of each congregation to feed and lead the church as servants of Christ and his people. In other words, even though there is equality before God as children and heirs and priests and ministers, some and not all are called by God to serve as leaders. For example, Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders. You hear the distinction? Speaking to the church in whole, remember your leaders, meaning that some have been appointed to exercise leadership. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. What were they doing? They were teaching the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, is what the author of Hebrews says. Again, 1317 of Hebrews, obey what? Your leaders and submit to them. Again, Leaders have been appointed. Leaders have been called and appointed. And it says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I love that little part right there. Let your leaders exercise leadership. Don't give them too much trouble because then they start to say, man, this job stinks. Oh, I don't like exercising, you know, or, or ministering to and caring for the sheep the way that I have to at times because the sheep are just tough. I know, I'm one, you know. I have to submit to elders. I have to submit to you in so many ways. I have to submit to Christ, and none of that's easy at times. But the resistance that we create makes a joyful position in leadership become a total drag. Submit. I love that passage. I love that. It's one of my favorite ones. 
and I need to practice it more. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you, brothers, to respect, okay, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. We see leadership that has been placed over the congregation here, chosen to exercise leadership responsibility over them. Acts 20.28, speaking to the Ephesian elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders we could say, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. The congregation under Christ and by his word and spirit uses its authority to recognize and affirm leaders whom God calls. And then the congregation puts those people in positions of leadership and voluntarily supports that leadership by learning from their teaching and following their initiatives. Of course, that would be that they fall in line with God's word. You don't support behaviors and attitudes and initiatives that don't do that. You bring those things to the elders' attention. But ultimately, you voluntarily support the leadership that ultimately... You're appointing in some way, shape, or form. Now, this may sound like a contradiction to have an authoritative congregation submitting to leaders (laughs) that it puts in place, but it isn't a contradiction because there is a great difference between leadership that inspires and models and mobilizes and teaches and persuades and points the way in ministry and mission and the corporate authority of the congregation that puts doctrinal and moral boundaries around that leadership and holds it accountable to serve the good of the church. Congregational authority and strong leadership under that authority are not incompatible. They are biblical and they are vital. E, the leadership of elders. These leaders in the congregations of the early church were called elders. The point here is that the eldership was not one alternative leadership form among many in the church, and some would have you believe that today, that there's just different ways of doing it and different titles. There wasn't. It was universal as far as we know. This title elder, it covered a larger span. Uh, And there were always more than one elder in each church as far as we know. Scripture indicates that. Now consider these texts that show how widespread was the practice of having elders in each church, in the early church. And, And we've been studying the early church in our regular weekly services, but we really haven't gotten to the point where we've seen appointed elders in those things. We've been seeing a church that's been led by the apostles, but we're going to see a transition soon. Okay, take this example. Uh, For instance, in the Jerusalem church, Acts 15, 22 says, it seemed good to the apostles and who? The elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Right there in the book of Acts in the early church, we see the apostles, we see a decision that seemed good And they made the decision, the apostles, in conjunction with, uh, as team members, the elders. They made a decision to send these guys up to Antioch. Elders were in place. In the Ephesian church, Acts 20, 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the what? Elders of the church to come to him. Summoned 
the elders there at that church. And the churches of Crete, Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, he says, so that you may put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders were being appointed in these churches throughout Crete. How about in the churches that the Apostle James wrote to, James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for who? The elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. In the churches of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 1 Peter 5.1, so I exhort who? The elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, what Peter writes. And the church is the apostle Paul founded on his first missionary journey and maybe even during the second and third. It says this, Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed Elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The universal extent of elders in the early church becomes even more obvious when you realize that the term elder is the same uh, person designate, designated by bishop or overseer. We see that in Titus 1, 5 to 7, Acts 20, 17 and 28, or even pastor, same title, elder for bishop and pastor, overseer, these things. It's really the same thing. It means elder every time. Now, in the context of an elder being a pastor, we see in Ephesians 4, 11, Acts 20, 28, and 1 Peter 5, 2, where elders are given a shepherding function, where they're to shepherd the sheep of Christ. They're like uh, what Bruce would call an under-shepherd. Jesus is the head shepherd. Elders are under-shepherds who care for the flock. Very interesting. It's really hard to escape the conclusion that God's will for the local church is that it have a group of elders as its primary leaders. I think we've established that through all those different examples, and there's, there's more in Scripture, but we just don't have time to cover them all. F. Feeding and leading. The functions of elders was to feed and lead. Or to say it another way, the elders are responsible for teaching and governing the congregation. As leaders, they give guidance and direction to the church. As teachers, they oversee the life of the church to preserve its biblical faithfulness. They are what I would like to call wardens of the word of God. Titus 1.9, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elders are the trustees of the truth in the life of the church and they are the governing overseers. 1 Tim 5.17, let the elders who rule or another translation would be govern um, let the elders who rule or govern well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You see an exhortation here to honor those men who give their lives to teaching and preaching God's word. You know, that's like one of my favorite ones. I'm such a sinner. You know, you can get a sermon like this, then you take it and point it to yourself. I'm not even sure what doubly honor looks like. You know, what does that mean? 
Whatever it is that you're giving to others, give me double. Minus trouble, though. Don't give me double trouble. No, but ultimately, man, they are um, deserving or considered to receive double honor because they put forth the task of studying diligently and teaching sound doctrine, which ultimately, in so many ways, obviously Christ is the sustainer of his church, but he uses the word to sustain his church and to guide it and to lead it. And those who give their time and, and answer the call to that and are appointed to do those things, that's an important role and task. It is. The elders are the trustees of the church, of the truth in the life of the church. They are the governing overseers and what have you. So it's clear that there is a diversity of function amongst the elders. All must be able to handle the word of God and be able to recognize false doctrine and correct error. But some, okay, all of them have to be able to discern truth from error and correct those things and lead the sheep. But some labor, specifically labor in preaching and teaching, maybe from a pulpit or in a class or, or however you want to put it. But all are responsible to really um, handle the word with all folks. Now, these are great, just great, six great fundamental truths about leadership. Good stuff. Good stuff we can bank on. It's all scriptural. Now, in the passage that you heard read earlier in 1 Tim 3, 1 to 7, the Apostle Paul listed 15 qualifications for an elder. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time teaching through each one because we have other things to do in a moment here. But I want to briefly run through them and maybe make a little bit of comment on them. And I know you're thinking, oh my gosh, there's 15 of them. Well, they're really important. The Word of God lists 15 of them here. There's probably more somewhere. These are listed right here. 15 things. This is how serious it is for a man to be appointed as an elder, that he must meet this criteria. Fifteen things, here they are. Number one, an elder must be above reproach. Okay, to be above reproach basically means to be blameless. And I would say in regards to living his life, that he's pretty much blameless in his life. We're not talking perfect, we're just talking about a guy that, you know, when you think of him because you've met him or you know him, you immediately think, that's a godly man. That's not, oh, that guy's confused. That guy's goofed up. That guy loves Jesus on, you know, Sundays, but on Mondays, he loves O'Malley's, you know, or whatever, and he's there drinking all night. I mean, it's got to be a guy who lives a life that's above reproach, meaning that he should not be able to be approached by others because of sins and, you know, blatant, habitual behavior and these sorts of things. Again, not perfect, but above reproach. Number two, an elder must be the husband of one wife. We, you know, unless you live in Arizona and you're Mormon, you can't really get away with that in this culture and community here because they seem to do it over there. It's a bizarre thing. And it is a cultural thing for the first century to have multiple wives. But an elder, technically, via scripture, must be the husband of one wife, particularly in that context because that was where you could have multiple wives. And I love that truth because that truth shows the true heart of God about marriage. Well, you know, you could have a harem, you could have 700 wives and 300 concubines, that was perfectly lawful, and you know, blah, 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 look at King Solomon, you know, it's okay. You know what, I would say, I would categorize those things under maybe God's permissive will, but definitely not God's purpose for man. One wife is one heck of a responsibility, literally. Two, oh, 
Three? Four? How do you manage that? You get them confused. Hey, Sally, I'm not Sally. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it just it doesn't work, and it's not according to God's will and word. God didn't fashion multiple women out of Adam's ribs. He'd have walked around lopsided because he hadn't had enough. I got six wives. You know what I mean? I lost six ribs. He made one wife for Adam. One. Later on, somebody thought that it was a good idea to have multiple wives. God being a God who gives some freedom down here. But I, 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 would, I would say that that's not the true heart of God. God allows it, but it's not his design for human relationship between a man and woman is between a man and a woman, not a man and multiple women or vice versa. And I love it. It just, man, this would probably like in that context taught during, you know, Paul's day, that would have probably eliminated a whole lot of guys who thought they were candidates because they had multiple wives. And God says, no, it's got to be a guy who has one wife who honors me in marriage with one wife. He's the one that's qualified. And I think there's an exception for those who are yet to be married. Just because a man is not married doesn't mean that he can't qualify to be an elder. You know, he's got to meet the other qualifications and stuff. It's not like, ooh, unless you're married, you can't be an elder. You know, you, you can serve as an elder as an unwed guy, you know. But when you get married, you better have one wife in heart and mind. Huge, huge truth. Number three, an elder must be sober-minded. Does that mean he must not be drunk with lust and drunk? I, I think so. I, that's an interesting phrase, sober-minded. I would say discerning, thinks clearly about the things of God and about things on the peripheral level. He's sober-minded. He has a mind that's focused on the gospel, on the things of God, and it's not frustrated by or captivated by all the things down here at this level. He's sober-minded. I mean, that could be taken in multiple directions. I like the term, sober-minded. Have you ever met someone who's not sober-minded? I think I have. You know, they're all over the place. I, I don't know. They, they don't get it or something. I, I don't know how we would describe that. But I think that it's a singular focus. I'm a man of Christ, and I'm about the things of Christ. And that's what's a priority to me. And I'm not going to fill my mind with all these other things. I'm going to have a biblical mindset. For an elder must be self-controlled. Self-controlled, self-governed. A, a man who controls his actions and leads his life in a way that's honorable to the Lord. Self-controlled. Have you ever met someone who's not self-controlled? And that might, uh, the best way to describe that might be someone who just explodes over things. You know, the littlest thing happens, you know, and they're just, they go Chernobyl mode, you know. Wow, he's not very self-controlled. He really can't control his actions, his bodily actions and, and things like that. And he just, you know, just runs crazy with his mind and his body and does things. And he's pretty reckless and, and what have you. Self-controlled would be the antithesis to all those things. Number five, an elder must be respectable. Someone uh, that you would see as being respectable. What's going to make someone respectable? A man who has godly character, godly integrity, a man who puts Christ first, a man who honors his family, his wife, loves her, does those things. He's a respectable man. I know that, you know, I know Jim in the community. I know who that man is. He's a respectable man. He must be respectable. Number six, an elder must be hospitable. 
Okay, he's not a miser with what he has. He's a man who gives freely of what he's been given. He's that kind of a steward. He's a man who is willing to open up his home to others. Now, that doesn't mean that he just allows anyone to come in. He's got it open. He says a sign, you know, has a sign on the door that says, all homeless people, welcome here. In this community, that could be pretty bad. But he's a man who has a heart that is hospitable towards others. If somebody needs something, I'm going to give freely. If somebody needs a place to come where I can encourage them or they want to engage in a Bible study or they need shelter for a moment, a friend, brother, whoever, man, they're hospitable. They're willing to open up what they have for others. They give freely, as Christ did. Seven, an elder must be able to teach. An elder must be able to teach. That's something that separates an elder from a deacon. Deacon, almost the exact same list, minus teaching. An elder has to be able to teach the Word of God. Doesn't mean that he has to be a pulpit preacher, but he has to be educated in the Word of God, doctrinally sound, and be able to teach the Word of God. Right here in relationship that way, we all should do that. But also in classwork and in those ways, he's got to be a man of the word of God and he's got to have a heart to impart God's truth to others. He has to. He has to. But again, he doesn't have to be, you know, the Phil Baker of the church and preaching pulpits and all that. Many do. Many do. And I think that it'd be really cool if they, if they did take that step of faith in the future, man. I, I can tell you right now, there isn't a guy on our panel that I would not entrust to this pulpit. I would entrust them to this pulpit. They handle the word good. Good men. But they've got to be able to teach. Eight, an elder must not be a drunkard. This is huge. Notice how it says an elder must not, it doesn't say an elder must not drink. It doesn't say that. It says an elder must not be a drunkard. There's a difference between having a drink and being a drunkard. There's a huge difference between the two of them. Uh, some would say that an elder can't touch alcohol. You know, it's poison of the vine and blah, blah, blah. They'd, they'd have you believe that. That's not true. But an elder must not be a drunkard. He must not be someone, a man who gives in to too much wine. Uh, and why do people give in to too much wine? Usually it's an escape. Usually it's an identity crisis or those things. Usually it's an insecurity. Usually it's some sort of pain or, or trouble from something, an event in the past or what have you. There's many different reasons why people, you know, get sauced and, and drunk. I spent a large part of my youth and into my early 20s being a, a drunkard. And at, ultimately it was really just a, a mask for the pain, emotional pain that I was going through through my, ch you know, ch things in my childhood and, and even decisions that I made during my youth that were really hard and, and devastating and difficult to deal with. But an elder must be a man who is not a drunkard. He doesn't seek alcohol as a means to escape reality, to escape his duties, to escape the difficulty of relationship. Sadly, there's a lot of men that even preach in pulpits that are drunkards. That's one way that they deal with the pressures and stresses of ministry. The man's not qualified. He's got a character flaw if he gives in to the alcohol. He must not be a drunkard. He must handle alcohol in a way that is honoring to God, and there is a way to do that. Nine, an elder must be gentle rather than violent. This is huge. Not that we all run around wanting to beat the pulp out of people. Sometimes we do. 
especially when we're driving. <laughs> I just started reading, my wife and I started reading, you know, the 365-day Bible thing. You know, every year I get about halfway through the year, then I give up. I can't keep resolutions. You know, I got a lot of things. But it's interesting that one of the primary reasons why God destroyed the earth was because of violence. Read Genesis yourself. Read it. Violence multiplied in the earth. Violence, violence. Were there other forms of debauchery and sin? Absolutely. But violence is literally mentioned multiple times. Violence, violence, violence. What is it about violence that we're so attracted to? I was one of the first guys in the circle at Davis High when fists started flying. Kill him! I still watch UFC. You know, I play violent video games on occasion. What is it about violence that's so attractive? It's almost, it almost creates, is it because we're fallen and we have a lust for blood, amongst other things? Violence, ultimately defined, is, an, is, is a human act against another human, another image bearer. It's an atrocity to God. He hates it, literally. And yet we're so attracted to it. And, and, and one of the qualifications here is that the elder would be a man who is a gentle man, not a violent man. He doesn't explode and even turn to fists in those things. He's got to be a man who's gentle with others. Nobody in all of history was affronted like Jesus Christ. Did you ever see him punch anyone? I think the hardest thing that we've seen from him is in Matthew 23 where he does the seven or eight woes, and that was pretty hardcore, but he didn't thump anybody. An elder must be a man who is gentle rather than violent. An elder must not turn to violence as an answer to a problem. Now, does that mean that if somebody stormed through that door and because, you know, we live in this day and age where there's mass shootings and all these things. If somebody came in here and he came in and he started beating people up, that we can't put it on him a little bit? If I'm probably just going to break this one. I'm going to put it on him. Why? Because I want to protect my sheep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sit down and listen to the gospel. <laughs> There's self-defense, right? But an elder isn't someone who's always going around looking to pick a fight, you know, and then you hit me first. Yes! You know, and I mean, that's not an elder. An elder's like, oh my gosh, they're trying to avoid this stuff. Yeah, even verbally, exactly. But it doesn't mean that they're cowards. Again, reading in my daily, cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Huh? Yeah. So, I mean, there's truth there. We can defend, but we don't go around. Elders don't go around. Christians shouldn't, for crying out loud. Ten, elder, an elder must not be quarrelsome. I'm just thinking of that proverb, a quarrelsome wife is a, you know, whatever. The women are like, don't you go there, buddy. I'll show you quarrelsome. What, what, what profit is there in being quarrelsome? You know what quarrelsome turns to? Violence. You either want to thump the person for being quarrelsome or you get yourself to a level of violence. 
An elder must not be a quarrelsome person. They must be a peace-loving person, a gentle person. An elder, 11, must not be a lover of money. Did you hear that one? An elder must not be a lover of money. Think right now how many men holding pastoral office would be disqualified because of that right now. There's one that leads a church of 30,000 people in Texas. His name's Joel Osteen. There's another one named T.D. Jakes. That list goes on and on and on. Men have seized the position of elder, lead pastor, senior pastor, same thing, and are absolute lovers of money. They use the church and the things of God to amass wealth. And how quick are we to post their little nuggets of hope on Facebook? I can be all that I can be today. I just joined the army. There's a false gospel out there, friends. It's everywhere. Elders are not to be lovers of money. Elders ought to be the kind of men who love to give it away, to give it back to God, to provide for others. Not lovers and greedy, keeping it and massing it. I think this is one of the reasons why God has kept me pretty much broke my whole life. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would handle money well if I came into a bunch of it. Can I just level with you? Man, I'd shoot the works. You know, I'd probably violate every one of these in six minutes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and explode. Where'd Pastor Phil go? He exploded. It's just God has a purpose for me. He knows me better than I do, and he gives me enough to survive, and it's always been enough, and there's always been a little extra. But I'm not a lover of money. In fact, have you ever noticed this? And I think the other guys, the other elders would feel this way, but when you have extra money, you end up getting all ticked off because then you just you blow it the wrong way or you do. It's like I'm more unhappy when I have more money than I am when I have less. Isn't that weird? When I'm tapped, man, it's just like I'm depending on the Lord. And all of a sudden, I get a bunch of money for something. You know, once in a while, I'll land a big old DJ job or I'll do a construction project, you know, I'll get a couple thousand dollars, you know, and all of a sudden, man, look at me. I'm Phil Trump on a way small level, <laughs> right? I'm a gnat in Trump's office. Look at this. It's better to be a gnat in his office than not, you know? Ah, you can't be a lover of money. You have to look at money as a means to advance the gospel. You look at your possessions and those things as tools that you can leverage for the advancement of the gospel. That's the heart of an elder. Not just that you can amass it. Twelve, an elder must be a good manager of his own household. We heard it earlier in the passage that, man, how can a man who's been called and appointed lead the church, lead in the church if he can't lead in his own home? If your home's a mess, let's work on that. Then we'll talk about eldership for you in the future. But, man, you can't have a household that's, you know, it's just a mess. And I'm not talking about, you know, a high lawn. I breach that one all the time. I like a high lawn. My wife's like, look at the grass. It's not grass. It's pampas grass. Look how beautiful it is. There's soldiers hiding in there from Vietnam. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Come out and minister to them. And just managing your household well, leading your family well, paying your bills. You're responsible. Pay your bills. Manage your household well. 
13, an elder must teach his children to be submissive. And the passage actually says in a dignified way. Submissive children. Children that are submissive to authority. That's the example that an elder must show and give to his children. That his children are submissive to authority. Now, that gets really challenging when they hit about 13 years old. Doesn't it? How many of you have one? Or have had some? Yeah, I see all kinds of eyeballs going, oh, he's preaching today. He's preaching the word today. I know. I'm looking at you, son. That's you. He speak. Listen to him. Listen to him. Yeah. There's something about authority when they hit teenage years, and it's just like, I don't know this child. Pretty sure I gave birth to you, but I don't know you. Something happens. But in elders, the way that he manages his household is that he is teaching his children to be submissive to authority. How? Primarily through his submission to Jesus Christ and to others. More is caught than taught, always in a house. If they see a guy who always bucks authority and always has a problem with it and is always jacking it up and and really doesn't submit to authority, which means you're really not submitting to God. I love that, how people always like, you know, I got a big problem with this guy, but I have no problem with the Lord. No, if you have a problem with him, you have a problem with him. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. You know, it just, if they see a guy who just, it just is always, you know, bucking it and fighting it and kicking against it, it's okay to be critical of authority at times because sometimes authority is out of bounds. And you can teach your children that. There's a way to show them truth there. But man, the example that an elder must show his children is that we have to submit to authority because it honors Christ, because he's placed that authority over us. It's a hard thing to do at times, but that's what you model with your kids. If a guy wants to be an elder and he's got a bunch of kids that are crazy and they never mind or listen or do these things and they're disrespectful to other adults and things like that, somewhere along the lines he's failed. And that needs to be corrected and God is good. And he can do that. 14, an elder must not be a recent convert. Can't be a new believer. Why? Because the passage says he could become puffed up with pride. You know, you're, you're given a responsibility like that, which is a very high responsibility. And if you're a new convert and you're given that responsibility, you know, you haven't learned really some things. And pride usually... I mean, pride is always there, isn't it? Amen, right? Pride is always there. But when you're first converted, pride is really there. And that I'm a Christian now and you're not, you're going to hell, you know? And we, I mean, pride just comes out in all these different ways. We become illuminated to Christ and oh my gosh, pride gets crazy. Can't be a recent convert. It's got to be someone who's walked in faith for a season. You know, I think Timothy was traveling with Paul for about 11 years, and then he was appointed. Does that mean that every person has to wait 11 years? No. Watch their life and doctrine closely. But you can't be fresh off the boat. And I love Jesus now. You're an elder. Yeah! Oh, my gosh. Needless to say, that church closed its doors six months later, you know? No, they can't be new at this. Finally, an elder must have a good reputation amongst outsiders. Uh, I think that runs in line with being respectable. If you were to ask an outsider, someone who's not a part of the church or whatever, just a person that's in the community, maybe somebody, a, a, you know, a worker or something like that, 
their response should be, man, that guy's, a, that guy's a good man. I don't get it. He loves Jesus, and he's all about church and all that, but I don't get any of that. I think it's kind of dumb, but that's a good dude, man. He's got to have a good reputation amongst outsiders. He can't be known by the community as a goofball. Goofball being silly fun, yeah, but not because I'm a goofball. But not like, dude, that guy does not have his life in order. What the heck's he doing running that church? Are you kidding me? Good reputation. Now, I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. You have been paying excellent attention. In the church today, I'm about to wrap this up and invite Paul up. And in the church today, there is a false understanding of what elders are. Many different opinions and angles and things in the church today. Elders, are, they tend to be viewed as a separated group of the most holy men or something along those lines. They're just seen as this, this you know, group of however many and, and that's them and I'm really not sure who they are. You know what I mean? They're almost like an eclipse that only comes around once a year. You know, it's like, I think that's an elder. Look at him. He's glowing. He's running to the bathroom. <laughs> That's why he's glowing. There's the elders. I remember, um, you know, being at my last church, in some ways it was like that. And I think that's just because the place was so big. I don't know if it was really their fault, but it was just like, I remember as a pastor at that church, and when the elders came around, all of a sudden I started acting godly. You know, I, there was like this pressure to be like, because I was in the presence of the holy ones. You know? It was just weird, right? Aren't there some misconceptions out there? Like, man, there's that group of elders. Wow, there goes one of them. He's glowing, you know, and I'm just, I'm just me. There's a weird attitude about them. There's a weird opinion about them. They tend to be viewed as this most holy group or whatever we want to call it. But in reality, one of the ultimate primary responsibilities and tasks for an elder is to model the Christian life to others. You can't model the Christian life if you're a separated group and you hardly show yourself. You can't. They are called and appointed to model the Christian life before others. Now, the implications of this are huge because this means that all Christians are supposed to exhibit the same character qualities and behaviors as elders. They're not some isolated group that really gets it they're perfect, and they get it better than I do. And, you know, and since they're called to a higher level of leadership, they have to live a certain way, and I don't have to live that way. No, they have been, they have been presented and appointed and put before you to model the Christian faith and life and practice before you because that's the way that you're to live. Oh, does that mean that I have to teach in pulpits and all that? No. But their character qualities are the same qualities of character that you should bear. You shouldn't be a drunkard. You shouldn't be a drunkard. You shouldn't be quarrelsome. You should be sober-minded. You should be gentle rather than violent. You should live a life that's above reproach. And one of the pitfalls in eldership and in church leadership and in just in the congregations is that we view them as this group that has to live a certain way, and I don't have to live that way. So therefore, I can just do whatever I please. You've missed the whole point. They've been given as a... As a visible expression of the Lord's calling on each of your lives. 
We just read a moment ago how we are to mimic an elder's life, the way they live out their faith, that we're to do that. I read that a little bit ago. That's what they are, which means they're down at this level, rubbing shoulders with us, doing life with us, and doing their very best in the power of the Holy Spirit to model the Christian life and faith. They are not perfect. They get things wrong. And you have the right and responsibility to lovingly, lovingly correct even an elder in an honorable way. But they're right here at our level. Not above, not some reclusive group. They are to model the Christian life. With that being said, I'd like to turn the remainder of our time over to Paul Rogers. Come on up, Paul. He will present to you the men who have met the necessary qualifications for eldership here at Redemption Hill Church. Praise the Lord. What, what day is it? Where is it? All right. So I wanted to, to go over a few things just to give you a sense of why we're at this point and why we're going through this process now. Um, and also just to give you a, an opportunity to know who the men are that have been involved and then uh, get a sense to see who they are and hear a little bit from them. We'll call them up and let them give a little bit of time of testimony. Um, we're not going to have time today. We're going to try to be fairly quick about this to give a, a lengthy uh, testimony of our lives, but we'll try to give you some insight as to why we um, hopefully meet all those qualifications. Uh, we've been observing each other's lives for uh, about a year now. In fact, um, it, was, it was about two years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, Cammie um, uh, uh, and my family had been uh, ministering with Phil for some time, and uh, he really seemed to begin to, to show a desire to... To, uh, to be a pastor of a church on his own. I'm not sure exactly how he would phrase that, but he began to talk about, about the idea of uh, pastoring a church. Uh, and we, we considered him, really, at that point, he was providing us pastoral sort of oversight, and uh, we were ministering alongside of him, so we felt close to him. And I hope, think we encouraged him along those lines. Uh, and then we wound up going to a conference together, uh, heard some great men speak about the idea of planting churches, and I think we kind of caught the vision with Phil and his family. Um, uh, in fact, most of my family attended the conference and some of the other uh, men that eventually got involved, uh, and we really began to pray, I think earnestly at that point, that God would bring this about. Now, we had no clue, I think, at that point. That was June of 2011. Uh, but, but we said, Phil, we're with you. We will stand with you as you go through this journey. <laughs> and, and Rachel, thank you. We, I think we were all united in that. 
Well, uh, over the course of the next few weeks and months, there were several men that began to uh, meet together and pray, uh, I think weekly at first, um, and you'll meet those guys. You, you, you know them all, of course. It's Aaron, Colby, Phil, and I. And then a few weeks later, Bruce joined in. Uh, and then ultimately, over the course of time, we, we had our brother Mike Boyd also join uh, our group of men who were meeting regularly, praying uh, for one another and praying for all of you and seeking the Lord's wisdom and, and grace as to where we would, would go uh, with this church. Uh, back in January of 2012, uh, we got to the point where we decided it was going to be, a, well, we had actually come beyond that point. By then we said, we're going to do this. In January, we actually filed the paperwork with the state of California. There were a number of things that had to be done uh, to, to function and operate as a church in the state legally. Uh, we did actually undertake to do those things. We became a, a nonprofit corporation, uh, and we're legally licensed in the state of California to operate as a church. Um, so as those things came together, the men continued to pray. Um, the board was established, and we began to meet as a board of directors, and our intention from the very beginning was that board of directors would become, over time, the board of elders, as we are now essentially proposing to you now, uh, and, and will take place here very, very soon. Um, Phil did such a, an amazing job of reviewing what the the requirements are what, what really our requirements are as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ to uh, submit to the authority of Christ, to submit to the authority of leaders and then to one another. And I know that he's going to continue uh, preaching uh, on the subject for the next few days and weeks, I presume. Uh, but I, I was reading this morning, I don't know why, but um, I was reading through this book that Phil has been encouraging us to read. And I'm going to actually take a second to encourage you to, to pick it up also. If you don't have a copy of this book called Doctrine, What Christians Should Believe, um, Phil's been studying with some men in the, on Tuesday mornings. <clears throat> Excellent tool to become more familiar with the key doctrines of the, of the faith. But one passage struck me this morning just as I was preparing this morning, uh, uh, doing my normal reading. And the, the passage is from the chapter on the church, God's sins, and it says, the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and for their joy. And it struck me that all that we're teaching about today is designed to remind us of that fact of who we are in Jesus Christ. Um, it's come to the point now where we believe we need to take this necessary step. The apostles appointed elders in the first century. Uh, and they, they are doing that sort of indirectly through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit's work. Um, Men are appointed as leaders, and we want to just go through that process to let you see who these men are uh, that we believe God has put in place at this time. I want to just give you a minute to know who I am, and then I'm going to let each of these men come up and talk a little bit about where they are in their journey of faith, if you will. 
Um, I actually, I did want to mention too. I think that through that process, we we ministered with Phil for quite a number of years, so we got to watch his life of growth. I, I remember when Phil essentially got saved. It was very, um, I don't know, maybe a dozen years ago or so, and he began to work uh, briefly in the, in the junior high ministry, and I think he went on to high school. I don't remember exactly. Again, one of the requirements of elders is not that they have to have good memory. <laughs> but um, it, it was amazing to watch. It was, it was, I mean, this is faith in action. It was amazing. Um, and several other guys that had been saved recently. And just the way God was working in them and calling them to, uh, to, to preach the word. And they were faithful. They were faithful to do it. Um, so I didn't know Phil before that, but it was, uh, it was an exciting thing to see. Yeah, well, yeah, I, you know, you wouldn't want to know me before I got saved either. So. <laughs> well, we all would. That's right. We love each other in the world. Don't we? But um, we, I just wanted to let you know that I had have, that, have had that privilege, and I think some of the other men involved here, too, have seen Phil over time. Um, and that's why we, we came alongside him, because we saw that God was going to use him uh, as a teacher of the Word of God, he was growing in his understanding and wisdom in the Word, and his desire as he preached to junior hires every week uh, was to see them grow up in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Uh, and that impacted us a great deal, uh, Cammy and me and our family. Um, so we, we believed, then, as we went into this process, that this is where God wanted us, that this was a man that we would follow and be willing to, uh, to minister alongside. Uh, I became uh, a Christian. I grew up in a home, I think, that was Christian, or at least considered itself Christian. My dad was a believer. He'd been baptized uh, sometime during the Korean War. I think war tends to have that effect on people. Um, he was he was serving in the Air Force uh, in Japan. But he, he insisted that we go to church and be brought up in, uh, in the church, and uh, over time we, we were uh, taught the things of God. Um, I think for probably most of my teen years, I hit that age of rebellion, if you will, and I just said, oh, okay, you know, I believing most of those things, or at least they were very, very nominal in my life. Um, at one point uh, when I was uh, in the Army, um, serving in Germany and had met Cammy, and we would, uh, had actually begun dating a few weeks, maybe months before, um, my brother, who was assigned to the same station I was in Germany, had invited us to a little Bible church where he had been serving with his wife uh, for about a year. And they invited us to a, a, a corral, an Easter corral. And it was there that the Lord, it was April of 1980, and um, the Lord just just woke me up. I mean, I realized that I've got to turn away from this life that I'm living and really believe what I say I believe. If I'm going to be a follower of Christ, I need to be a follower of Christ. And so at that point, I really, I believe I was saved. I mean, to the point where I understood what it meant and that, that I had a desire that I would follow him. And so over the course of the next few months, I got out of the Army, married my wife, Cammie, came back into uh, that fellowship in that little town in Germany, and for the next two years, we had a very solid biblical uh, teacher who week to week was teaching us the Word of God, just like here, opening it verse by verse. We went through, we're going through Romans, not Acts, and it just transformed our, our thinking, our attitude of life and everything else. So since that time, uh, we've been raising our children to know the Lord. We've desired that. Um, so I've been saved a little over 30 years now. Uh, 
that's largely due. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah. We've raised our children to know Jesus Christ. That's been our desire. And uh, we are anxious to, to, to continue to work alongside each one of you uh, and bring, you know, bring about whatever it is that God's work is here in this place. We're excited. Uh, a lot of things that I think God wants to do with us, this little church, Redemption Hill, right here in Modesto, California. So praise the Lord. I think that's enough about me. Uh, I'm going to call up the next man in the list is uh, Bruce Philbrun. I'm going to ask him to come up here and give us a little uh, insight into his testimony. Maybe I'll just sit right up here. I think most of you know me. Uh, I'm Bruce Philbrun. And my wife, uh, Ann Thuzla, in the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> she happens to be the youngest one in the congregation this time. <clears throat> but anyway, just to give you a little bit of a um, brief history of my life, uh, I'll try to be brief. I'm, I'm a very detailed individual, so it's hard for me to be brief. My wife, on the other hand, is very brief. But... Uh, Anyway, I grew up in a Christian home back in, uh, near Dayton, Ohio. And uh, it was a home, it was an, an old German Baptist group. So we were, we were brought up uh, in a very strict uh, religious um, community, basically. But during the course of my life, at uh, near 14 years of age, um, my dad died on the surgery table in an open heart surgery and uh, to say the least that kind of uh, uh, kind of woke me up and all of a sudden the Lord but I again I believe very strong in God's sovereignty and uh, that was a day that he chose to uh, call me but I felt very strong to and I recognized my sins and uh, at 14 years old, I actually uh, received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I went on for about three years in that particular state, you know, growing in the Lord, but I become kind of rebellious during that time. And then my, after my dad died, we moved here to California, and my mom remarried. And uh, out here again, I was uh, really awoken to the Word of God. And uh, I desired baptism and uh, was baptized in the summer of 1967. And I, from that time, I continued to grow. We uh, served a little church up in, uh, in the mountains, and I was a deacon there for about 16 years. And then we moved down to the valley and went to church at Ripon Grace uh, for about 30 years, in which... Uh, we served in the eldership there for a while and uh, enjoyed uh, ministering to the people there. But along my journey here, why, uh, I guess it was about a year ago now, uh, my son came to me and says, Dad, you need to visit our little church here at, uh, at uh, Redemption Hill Church, RHC. And so we... Uh, decided, sure, we'll come, we'll come look it over and come visit, and we did. And as we come, I was uh, 
it just excited me to see the, the, the way that this little congregation, this little church was growing. I enjoyed the, the preaching. It seemed to me I was really struck about the emphasis that was placed on the cross. Uh, because to me, the cross of Jesus Christ, that's all there is. <laughs> it's Jesus Christ and him only. And, um, and so I desired to want to continue to come and to worship here, in which I did. And, well, as, as we continue to worship here a while, the Lord started to, to wake me up about 2 o'clock in the morning and, and uh, give me a really a desire and, a, um, I don't know, a real strong feeling for this little congregation. And I, and I felt a real, real strong uh, a desire to kind of help uh, come alongside and shepherd and guide and lead and teach uh, this little congregation. And it wasn't very long uh, after that time uh, that Phil came uh, to me, I think through Aaron, and, and said, hey, we'd like for you to come to the leadership meetings, in which I did. And from that time on, I've been uh, continuing to serve in that, that aspect. It's brought us to this particular time. And again, I'll have to tell you that <laughs> it just amazes me. The Lord starts to wake me up again. At 2 o'clock in the morning, I don't know why at 2 o'clock in the morning, maybe at, I don't know what that is. But anyway, uh, but he does that, and I'll get up, and for some reason, God is able to bring the names of every individual, uh, men, women, and child, children, to my mind. And I, I don't have that sharp of a mind, <laughs> so it's God. And, and I pray for each one of you. And I... I just thank God for that. I, I feel sometimes like the Apostle Paul said when he prayed day and night in prayer uh, for the believers. And I, that's the way sometimes I feel. I feel like, man, I just have a, a desire that to see all of you grow in the, in the cause of Jesus Christ, that you'll grow in his word, that you'll grow uh, in the Holy Spirit, that you'll continue to pray, and that... Um, Together, you'll reach out and save a lost and dying world in this city. That's my desire for this little congregation, that we'll grow, uh, that we'll grow most of all spiritually, but that we'll grow numerically. We'll reach out into this little city here and bring hundreds of people in to, to serve Jesus Christ and to learn about him uh, because we're teaching the word of God here, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, I desire to continue to share and to teach his redemptive power and sanctifying work in Christ. Uh, Acts 20, 28 says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which is bought with his own blood. And I'm so thankful for that. And I, I, I would just tell you also that I have, uh, we have four children we have 12 grandchildren, 13 now, the one's married. But I'm so grateful, and I just praise the Lord. Uh, all my children and grandchildren at this particular time have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that, whew, to me, that, that's, that's a tremendous blessing. But above that, I have the same feeling as I do to my children and grandchildren to come alongside Pastor Phil and these other uh, brothers who desire to serve in the eldership uh, 
that same desire for you that you might grow in the Lord Jesus. Okay, next is probably Aaron. There we go. All right, so I'm responsible for him, I guess. That's what, um, I, I happen to be a little bit more like my mom, so brevity uh, should hopefully be. Colby, he might say otherwise, but um, <laughs> uh, my name's Aaron Filbrin. Uh, Bruce, of course, is, is my father, and um, just real, give you a real quick synopsis. I was born in that family, obviously, a great family with... With three siblings, have the pleasure of my sister being able to be here and even to sing and lead with me is an awesome thing. And my wife was planning on it, but uh, I have four kids that seem to be sick all the time. So you can pray for that. Um, But uh, when I was baptized at the age of nine, and uh, really, I think from my earliest days, I'm one of those guys that doesn't have a really, you know, fancy, uh, exciting testimony. Um, I was basically really self-righteous from birth and, uh, and knew that uh, my older siblings had, had, had made mistakes, and I was really good at watching their mistakes and going, hey, I just don't want to do that. And so I was pretty, pretty uh, uh, I guess for my parents, I think they would say I was probably pretty easy to raise because I, I didn't really buck the trend at all. But uh, what I found later on in life, especially through that, that teenage life, is I was very rebellious um, and very self-righteous. Um, I found a whole lot of uh, ways to pat myself on the back for how good I was and compare myself to others. And so, really, I got married real young, 19. So my wife and I, when we got married, um, spent pretty much the next few years kind of in limbo, uh, attending several different churches and, um, you know, doing the whole church thing on Sundays, but really not in any way committed uh, to the Lord. And about age 23, I I couldn't tell you the day. I'm one of those guys that I couldn't tell you the day I was baptized. I couldn't tell you the day that this this conversion moment happened. But uh, around the age of 23, I remember being in a class down at Stanislaus State and God really coming to my heart and saying, what, what are you doing? You know, what are you really doing with your life? What are you going to do with it? And really started to change in me, brought some men into my life um, that uh, – started to preach the truth to me and really open up what the gospel meant and, and explaining that. And over the last 10 years, I'm 33 now, um, that's what God has done. And uh, he's brought some amazing men. Uh, Colby, who you'll get to hear from, uh, has greatly influenced me and my beliefs and, and my understanding of God's word and, and just other, other men like that, Phil as well. And, and uh, it's just been a a great journey as he's brought me here. I have four little ones. Um, really easy to remember their names because they all start with A because we don't allow anything but A's in our family. So that's uh, Aiden, Aiden, Annika, Austin, and Ava. And so uh, you'll, if you've been here or are here for any amount of time, you'll you'll get to meet each of them, especially Austin. Uh, they'll make they'll make themselves known to you. But I just have a real heart. Um, I would identify and agree with my dad. I have a real heart for evangelism and a real heart to, to reach out in our community. I was driving, I uh, went to the movies with my wife the other day, and, and I'm sitting outside that we finished watching the movie, and she had to use the restroom, of course. And so I'm, I'm standing uh, outside waiting, and I'm watching people coming in. And I realized that, you know what, there's all these people coming in. I don't know any of them. I mean, I'm in a city of 220-plus thousand people, and there's so many people I don't even know, so many people that walk by me, drive by me, right, you know, make wonderful gestures to me on the road, (laughs) 
so many people that I don't even know exactly where, they're at, where their heart is, where, where God's working in their lives or not. And I've just been really blessed to be able to serve here for this year and, and excited about what God's doing in this congregation. And, and just to get to know you guys, I mean, it's been a real blessing and, and uh, developed some great friendships that I only expect to, to grow deeper. So that's me. I believe next is Colby. Colby Parker. Are you guys getting warm? Do you want me to turn the heat? Are we good? We're comfortable? Good, okay. That's, that's one thing. That's the 16th qualification, able to <laughs> manage the, the charge of temperature. I will keep it short, I promise. Um, yes, I can. There it is. Uh, I was saved at the end. Um, it kind of is. I, I grew up in a Christian home, very godly parents, and... Um, um, knew a lot about the gospel and even Jesus, believed it all intellectually. Um, but if there's no real change from the inside, uh, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, it's all for naught. And um, I remember especially uh, about my freshman year of high school, uh, went to, you know, summer camp, uh, Christian camp. You get those highs up there and, and you know, okay, I'm going to do this for the Lord and... Uh, you know, you try to do it in your own strength, and then about a week later, you're even further down in the dumps than before you go to the camp. And um, had a few experiences like that, and the more freedom I had, the later on I got into high school and even moving away into college, I just totally left the Lord uh, altogether, never was saved, and... Um, God was just exposing where I really was. Um, got into a whole bunch of um, um, depravity and sin and the depths of it. I don't want to explain it all. Just uh, um, to make light of it, but just uh, I really had goofed up my life. Um, came back to the area and was just doing my own thing going to school, working, and um, that's what I wanted to do, make money and live life, and hopefully a good life. Um, I had this friend who was always really good to me in high school, and uh, he started to become a pastor, and um, I heard him preach Sunday nights. I believe my, my parents invited me out to, to go here and preach on a Sunday night. And he, he was talking about uh, a few things, and he brought up some doctrines that I, I just really hated. And um, so I go home, and it, it doesn't make any sense. I, I don't really even believe any of that, but I, there's something working in my heart where I hated it. And so oh, I'm going to open up my Bible to prove this guy wrong. And uh, by the end of the whole experience, uh, I... I had to say, uh, the Lord just really opened up my eyes and, and revealed uh, my need for him, uh, my depravity, um, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, uh, the power of his resurrection. Um, from that moment, uh, and, and I would say that even took probably a year of having great despair uh, and living in that probably nonstop for about a year. Um, until God really just saved me. It was a long process. Uh, since that time, you know what? There were some things I would say that just immediately don't struggle with anymore. 
And then there's the majority of the stuff where I probably struggle with to a greater degree, but I absolutely hate uh, doing it. And um, uh, I was just going to say, um, I mean, I, I thank the Lord Jesus for saving me. He sought me out. I wasn't seeking him out. I, um, I'm convinced I'm saved not because my life has changed so much. I bet you can go to probably a Muslim or a Buddhist and they can say, well, my life has changed greatly too after becoming that. Um, what I will say this is I, I know the power of God through the gospel. That's the only reason why Paul was not ashamed of it. It's the only reason I'm not ashamed of it. It's my really my only hope, the power of God in, to transform this sinful life. And so I, I, I thank God for that. Uh, got to know Phil and um, Aaron about seven years ago. Phil probably about four, probably about that time. And um, some of these other men along the way. And, and uh, I just enjoy working alongside of them and uh, being called here to this ministry. I believe next is uh, Mike Boyd, saving the best for last. Stole my line. I was going to say, I know what you're thinking. You saved the best to last, but you wouldn't be right. Well, I have a similar background to Bruce, I suppose, in that I was raised in the old German Baptist Brethren Church, Dunkard. That's the full, the full title. Um, but uh, I was privileged to be raised in a home. My father uh, was a godly man, um, and at the age of seven, he expressed to me uh, that I needed a savior, and uh, so I accepted the Lord then, didn't know a lot about what that meant, but as time went on, uh, I realized that just because I was in a good home that that loved the Lord um, didn't mean that I was doing everything right, so through a process of God working on me, I realized that no more going into the, to the house that I lived in made me a good Christian then going into the garage made me a car. So it was, it was a period of, of a lot of years that God worked on my heart to, uh, to show me what he wanted, and he's still showing me that. Um, by the way, I thought he said we had 25 minutes, but I guess we have five minutes, so I'll, I'll keep this short. Uh, <laughs> um, I appreciate... Um, what the other men have had to say because, and especially Phil, the way you have, have brought out the fact that the elder board, the board of elders, the board of overseers, however you put it, is not a group of men that is up here. Uh, having been on the leadership team for a little while now, um, all of the men have hearts that want to serve. And I suppose that is, is what I would like to think of myself as having a heart to serve. That's what God has impressed on me. And had the privilege in, in the Griffin Grace Brethren Church also for a number of years of um, being a little bit, uh, for a time, a junior high leader, high school leader, deacon board, elder board, mission board, all the boards. But that doesn't mean anything because it's the heart that God has placed in each one of us that he wants us to, to fulfill. He wants us to follow what he wants us to do. And all those things are, are good experiences and, and you can learn, but... 
we still need to rely on God. We need to, to have our faith and our hope and our trust in him. And my desire is to, is to continue to serve. And it's been great knowing these guys. There's some, you know, Colby and Aaron and, and Phil have, have sharp minds. And, and Paul and, and, and Bruce, you know, you, you've been through a lot. And it's just been a, a, just a real privilege to get to know you and to see how God's worked in your life. But uh, they're challenging. They're, we challenge each other, hopefully. And so the, this group is not up here and you're down there because we're all together. We've all been called together to do what God wants us to do. So that's a real joy. Um, but I suppose a couple of my goals, uh, obviously, are to reach others with the gospel. Um, I live in Ripon, so that's, that's home for me. But Modesto is where we work, so that's home, too. And there's, there's so many other places we get into. And just to rub shoulders with people and to share the gospel and to be loving, to show that love that God has uh, placed within each one of us. And to a desire to, to help all of us come to the realization that that is our goal while we're here on earth, is to reach others with the gospel. That's it. And you can do that by, by giving a hug, by giving a, a, a meal, by doing all sorts of things uh, to those around us. So that's what I want to encourage you to do, to be involved in, as well as, as being involved with myself. The other thing is to, to help develop the talents and the gifts that God has given each one of you. You're all special. We're all special. We all are not eyes or, or arms or feet. We all have differing gifts. And what a joy. Wow. Um, and to see the board, too, I'm going to refer to it that. I'm probably wrong. But that, that group of men, um, you can see distinct gifts in each one of us, in each one of them. And God has, has got a reason for that. And there's, there's more gifts in this congregation than it's just astounding what, what God has gifted you guys and, and gals with. So my desire is to help us all realize that and to use the gifts together and to become a family that God wants us to be. And I was really, really impressed that uh, a couple of Sundays ago when we sang some, uh, some Christmas carols and we shared a little bit, the word family came out in a lot of us as we were sharing after that. That was just so special because it is a family, and a family cares for each other and is concerned for each other. So I want that to be um, uh, utmost in, in the board's uh, what we do as we care for each other. Just one quick verse. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with overseers or elders or deacons or anything. It's just a verse that's meant a lot to me as we go through life and as we struggle and as the, as the cares and the the battles come, and, and the, uh, the evil one wants to pierce the peace that we have. Uh, Isaiah 26, 3 and, uh, 3 and 4, you will keep him, you meaning God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. That's meant a lot to me over the years. And by the way, my wife, Kim, uh, 33 years. <laughs> Wow, man. You know, I, I know we're, we're running a little late, but who cares? If you don't look at your watch, you can't tell. I got a giant one right there, though. You know, um, man, I, I am a, I'm, a, I'm a richly blessed man. Um, planning a church is a, um, is a scary thing. Um, 
It's a challenging thing. It's a way different animal than leading a youth ministry. Uh, they're nothing alike. And um, to be blessed with, uh, with guys like this and people like you, and, and I'm not implying that it's all for me. It, it, none of it's for me. But to be surrounded by folks like you and men like this has made this journey of church planning probably one of the greatest things that I've ever endeavored. It's just amazing. I'm so thankful for this church. I'm so thankful for these men. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to the future. I'm looking forward to getting to know you folks more, getting to know them more, us doing more life together, being on mission together, and going wherever the Lord leads us. It's just an exciting thing. And uh, just a very uh, thankful man for you. And uh, I'd like to close our time <clears throat> with communion. I think that there's no better way to close a time like this of worship through communion. Um, what we must all realize before we take communion is just how great our God is. In that, obviously, what he achieved on our behalf at Calvary by sending his son. Massive, huge, extraordinary, beyond words. But that he's also left us his word. Without this, we know not of that or anything else. And that as an act of mercy and as an act of grace, that he would establish leadership in churches to care for his people. That is an extraordinary expression of his love and grace towards his people to give us leaders who care for us and watch over us. It really is. Um, and that's the right way to look at it. And so um, I'm very thankful for that, amongst other things. But I'd like for us just to take this time of communion just to worship him. Obviously, communion is about reflecting upon your own life for a moment in confession. Um, and it's about reflecting upon the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, the finished work of Jesus, that salvation is in him, him and him alone, and that we are saved by works, his works, not ours. And communion is a reminder of what he did on our behalf. And let's worship him and thank him during this time, too, for his goodness to us, that he gave us his son, that he gave us his word, that he's given us leaders that are here to care for us, that he's given us one another, that we might care for each other. Amen?